You are listening to the Left Right Forward Show with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Left Right Forward Podcast Show. I'm your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis. Today is a great day for our podcast show because I have an esteemed friend and colleague, and this friendship goes back to high school days, college days, and beyond. And I must say at the outset, there's a disclaimer. Not only he's an esteemed uh, career foreign service officer, uh, having served a number of posts around the world, and before he retired, he was ambassador to Qatar. Uh, but we were roommates in college. And I don't know how many people can say that they had roommates that become both were ambassadors, but I'm talking about my good friend and college roommate, Ambassador Kenton Keith. Welcome to the show, Kenton. Thank you, Delano. It's good to be with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I'm so excited that that you have agreed. Um, Just for our listeners um, and for our ambassador, our shows are designed to be informative, educational, and inspiring in many ways. And I think you'll find that by listening to Ambassador Keith. Uh, Kenton, let's talk about the early days, uh, because I am very proud of you and your background over the years, but I know a lot about it, but our guests, our listeners do not. So let's talk about the early days. Where did you grow up, and how did you get this sort of luster for the world and being involved in the world? Tell us about the early days. I was born on the other side of the Missouri River from you. Right. <laughs> you were from the Kansas side of Kansas City, and I was from the Missouri side. Correct. Um, and I grew up the son of a jazz musician in Kansas City, and uh, uh, my mother was a uh, uh, was also a singer in her uh, in her youth, and later became uh, an official with the Kansas City Housing Authority. Uh, both uh, my uh, my parents encouraged my sister, my brother, and me to uh, look beyond Kansas City for our uh, our, our uh, future. Um, I don't know how unusual that is in parents <laughs> to get out of here, right. <laughs> to say go out and find uh, find your path elsewhere. But uh, that was our case, and my uh, my sister has uh, lived in many parts of of the uh, the United States and and uh, the Middle East. As a matter of fact, my brother is in California, and uh, I have been in so many places that I have to write them down, right. and uh, and and try to uh, uh, remember when and where. But. Um, how did I get the idea of working abroad? Uh, I guess the earliest memory was uh, looking at the imported British television spy series on wow. early TV, mm-hmm. early black and white TV, where I thought uh, the the, uh, the the way they dressed and behaved and the parties they went to and uh the uh women who were involved in their lives etc would 
looked all very attractive, right. and I might shoot for that. Or maybe <laughs> a, uh, a job as a foreign correspondent. Uh, not knowing anything about either one of the realities. Right. So uh, I was lucky in getting to the University of Kansas and falling upon a an advisor who knew the Foreign Service, who took me under his wing and told me he thought that was a good good career path for me and pushed me until I took the, the Foreign Service exam. Um and I guess I don't know which of us was uh, more surprised that I passed it, but uh, anyway, that was uh, that was the first step. In the meantime, in the interim there at the university, I was at Naval ROTC and spent some years in the Navy uh, when I graduated from KU, and then went right into the Foreign Service. That, that, that I really want to parse this a little bit and talk a little more detail. Tell our listeners about your high school because I went to a segregated high school, Sumner High School, across the river in Kansas City, Kansas, and we're only about a year apart in age, and you went to a school on the, on the Missouri side. Tell us about that. I went to Lincoln High School in Kansas City, which was an all-black high school uh, in uh, the, I guess you would have to describe it as the the African American uh, neighborhood of Kansas City, uh, Missouri ghetto, uh, but also sprinkled into that uh, ghetto were some uh, professionals, homes of professionals, and and so on. But that was where everybody went to high school who had any notion. Of going on to college, it was a, it was the only thing we had that was like a preparatory school, mm-hmm. and um, we had a uh, a range of uh, quality in our teaching staff. We had good athletics, um, but some of our teachers were uh, ranked with the best teachers I had uh, anywhere. Uh, right. University or graduate school or anywhere. Uh, when I came along, they were uh, my favorite teacher, who was a Harvard graduate and uh, uh, a man of great d- distinction and culture. Um, he didn't really have uh, many offers when mm-hmm. he came out of Harvard, and he ended up teaching high school in Kansas City to not so many recipient uh, uh, any open-minded not that many open-minded students right. but he he took uh, a special care with those who seemed interested in moving on and challenged us and uh, and uh, opened our uh, vistas to uh, a lot that went beyond Kansas City yeah, I really appreciate your saying that because I had the same experience across the river uh, in Kansas City, Kansas at Sumner High School, and it was all black as well with black teachers, and they couldn't find jobs. They couldn't find. They couldn't get jobs uh, because of segregation in other parts of the state or the country, and many of them uh, settled uh, in our area and became great teachers. I mean, they were, they were just extremely qualified, so had the same thing on the Kansas side. Well, we noticed from the Missouri side 
that our Sumner uh, rivals were always winning science contests. <laughs> That's true. And we, <laughs> we suspected something <laughs> like that was going on. Good memory. We used to win the National Science Contest in Kansas City, uh, Kansas, uh, in Kansas City quite, quite frequently. I want to go back. You were very modest when you touched on uh, University of Kansas, and uh, uh, Kenton and I shared a room along with another esteemed uh, colleague uh, who since passed on, uh, uh, Reginald Buckner, who was a renowned musician and academic uh, who died much too, too young. He was our third roommate, and we were roommates at Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity House, which I know shaped my life in so many respects. Uh, I'm sure Kenton uh, may feel the same. But I wanted our listeners to hear about his ROTC days because he's very modest. Um, Kenton was the first African-American in the Navy ROTC program at the University of Kansas. Uh, am I correct? That's correct. I tell you, and, and so proud of you. And there was not another one in the four years I was there. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> um, the Navy in those days was uh, was trailing the other services mm-hmm. in integration and in uh, in offering a welcome to uh, black officers. Right. Uh, There were uh, fewer than 100 of us at that time when I uh, got my commission. Fewer than 100 of us. Wow. We all tended to know each other, and most of them uh, at at one time or another were uh, stationed in Hawaii, which the Navy seemed to think was uh, more hospitable for black people than say, Norfolk, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that Navy experience was, for me, a a most important part of my my background. Uh, I learned so much. I learned that I was uh, uh, able to compete with uh, my my white comrades. Mm -hmm. Um, I was on an aircraft carrier and rose to uh, position of uh, responsibility as an officer of the deck uh, underway. And uh, I even thought of giving the Navy uh, more than a second thought as a, as a career because things were going so well. And just then I got a letter from um, my, from the Foreign Service saying, uh, we still have you on our rolls and if you are... Uh, still interested in us, we're still interested in you. And uh, that was in uh, late spring of uh, 1964, 1965, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said yes, and they said, okay, you're uh, starting a class on the 15th of August. And that <laughs> was the beginning of my foreign service career. Yes, before we get into that, um, did you, you had mentioned to me sometime back that you served on the Midway? Right. The Midway, uh, in those days, aircraft carriers were named after major battles. Mm -hmm. So the Coral Sea and Yorktown and and so on. And the Midway, uh, after the Battle of Midway, uh, the Midway was commissioned in 1945, I believe, but not in time to actually see combat in the Pacific. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Midway was a, a good ship, a lucky ship, and uh, an active ship. And uh, 
from 1945 all the way up to the first Gulf War. Uh, Midway was active and uh, one of the best in the fleet. And it's on it's on display uh, right there in the port in San Diego. Yes. And yes. I didn't know you served on that because I spent some time, Gail and I spent time in San Diego and took that tour because our son had been in the Merchant Marine, and he yeah. encouraged us to take that tour. And then shortly thereafter, I talked to you, and you said you served on it. I was quite impressed. <laughs> quite a ship. Yeah, it was. Uh, she was a, a lovely, lovely ship. And uh, I don't know, I said lucky, mm-hmm. because uh, I think the, the service records show that the Midway was always a high performer. Uh, in uh, whether it was in Vietnam or, or whether it was in the Gulf or wherever she served. That's incredible. Uh, I'd like to move on. We're talking to uh, Ambassador Kenton Keith, uh, who has an esteemed career, uh, foreign service career. And um, we're just now talking about his beginning, uh, his foreign service career after his stint as a commissioned officer in the Navy. So where did you start? I remember when you went into the Foreign Service. I remember it, and we kept in touch over those years because we both had graduated from the University of Kansas, and I went on to, uh, to government service, and you went on to uh, United States uh, Information Agency, USIA. Am I right? That's correct. Tell us about that because that agency is no longer, and you can give that history t- to our listeners. Well, um, the USIA came into existence after World War II, uh, largely because uh, President uh, Eisenhower and Senator Fulbright uh, agreed that there was a need for uh, an organization that would promote international exchange, cultural and educational exchange, Mm -hmm. uh, to combat the uh, the, the negative propaganda in the Cold War. And the USI, the U.S. Information Agency, one of the world's greatest organizations, <laughs> was formed. I, I, I say that because, um, not, uh, not to take anything away from my State Department colleagues, uh, <laughs> but USI had room for uh, people who were a little eccentric. Mm-hmm. And we had... Uh, we had lots of writers, and we had musicians, and we had uh, journalists and uh, novelists and so on. Um, and the emphasis was always on engagement with the foreign publics, getting to know people, getting to work with people, and, and uh, speaking their languages and so on. And that was a... Uh, that that was a, a golden time in our foreign service, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, but for political reasons, uh, late in the 1990s, um, a deal was cut between uh, the sec- then Secretary of State, uh, Madeleine Albright, and Senator Helms, who uh, wanted to... Actually, he was after the USAID. Uh, that we, the administration, would agree to fold uh, USIA into the State Department. Right. In return for Senator Helms' willingness 
to allow the uh, the test ban treaty to go forward, mm. the chemical test test ban treaty to go forward, uh, and uh, so that was uh, having nothing to do with the. Uh, the, the failure or success of USIA, it was a political move. And ironically, uh, someone in Senator Helms' office told me uh, that uh, it wasn't really us he was after. It was AID. <laughs> All right. I, and, I, go ahead. No, I just wanted, wanted to say that um, I was involved because the USIA uh, made me the, the lead negotiator for um, – for the the amalgamation for USIA. Well, but before that time, they they chose the right person on the negotiating side. But I remember, I was back. You were back and forth uh, to Washington, and we would stay in touch. And I remember your strong feelings about it, and you were a real advocate that this was a mistake to fold uh, USIA into state. Uh, that you would lose this emphasis on cultural and and academic and uh, informational exchange, uh, you were absolutely opposed to it, and and, yes. and I think well, I think your 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 concerns paid <laughs> off because <laughs> I'm still uh, full of regret, right? Uh, that that this happened, uh, and you know I I've always pointed out to. Uh, to people who are interested in this, the, the story is that it, it was really people in the Department of Defense and other agencies who were the biggest cheerleaders for USIA. Mm-hmm. As uh, General Matt, Matt has said not that long ago, uh, if you don't fully fund the Foreign Service, then you're going to have to buy me more ammunition. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, That's a good point. Because uh, we lost something, because once they folded it, that emphasis on the cultural exchange, they tried to, if I remember, uh, beef, beef up the public, they called it public affairs inside state. But yep. we lost that yep. cultural uh, exchange piece, that informational That's exchange. Right. We lost That's it. That's absolutely true. We lost it. Um, and the, the, one of the, the ironies is that we still have such wonderful young people who come into the Foreign Service and wish to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, have, uh, I have been on the, uh, in the office of the Inspector General since my retirement and uh, leading inspection teams to embassies at various places around the world. Um, and I did that for um, some years. And I was always impressed by the people who were doing public affairs work in the State Department. They didn't have the culture or the background or the resources that we had, but they had the uh, the desire uh, to work in that field and the belief that it was in the interest of this country that we have uh, that, that kind of uh, relationship with foreign yeah. audiences. And that's too bad that we that, that 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 has been lost. To go back to the original tenets that you talked about of the USIA, and you mentioned languages, and I remember um, that you graduated from KU, and uh, I know in international relations in French, but you also uh, have learned and speak Arabic. And tell us about the facility of languages and how important that is uh, has been to you in your foreign service career. 
Well, of course, uh, for USIA people, uh, language ability is was always uh, critical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you couldn't do your job sitting behind your desk. Right. You had to go out and deal with uh, critical audiences, target audiences. We used to call them mm-hmm. um, people who were journalists, people who were uh, opinion leaders, and so on. You had to go out and mix it up and uh, uh, and be open to uh, discussions. Very often in their native language. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, when I came in, uh, they gave me the test in French, and uh, basically that was uh, uh, the requirement to have one language before you could have uh, more than one promotion. <laughs> but that, my advisors were saying you have to take. Uh, an esoteric language. You have to get trained in uh, Chinese or Farsi or Arabic or something mm-hmm. like that. And uh, what, do you, what, what would you prefer? And I said, well, I, <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just drew out of, this, uh, out of my uh, subconscious some, somehow, Farsi, mm. because that's what they speak in Tehran, and I thought it would be nice to go to Tehran. Right. And they said, well, okay, you can have Farsi if you like, but then that means that all of your career, or much of your career, will be spent in one place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they don't speak that language very ma- very many places. But if you take Arabic... <laughs> you have a much wider palette, and you can uh, count on service in North Africa and the Middle East and uh, Egypt and, and East Africa and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and off they sent me to Beirut to learn Arabic. Incredible. And uh, tell our listeners, uh, we're talking to Ambassador Kenton Keith, uh, former ambassador to Qatar, uh, in his illustrious Foreign Service career. Tell us about your assignments around the world uh, with your language abilities in Arabic and French. Uh, you, you served in so many places around the world. Um, give us a sense well, of, I, of your mission. Well, I, uh, I, I had a, a wonderful career for, uh, for my personal interests and, uh, and for my family. I, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, that is always a a challenge for our foreign service family uh, everything that uh, that we take for granted here in the US whether it's schools or uh, health or ad, uh, access to health care and that sort of thing is mm-hmm. it can be a challenge in foreign service and often is right. but uh, I was uh, rather lucky um, my first assignment was going to uh, to Beirut to learn Arabic, and then I was sent to Baghdad uh, for my so-called training post. And I was in Baghdad. I was supposed to be there for uh, a little over a year. And just at the end of that process, the 67 war broke out between Israel and the Arab countries around it. And um, so uh, the Iraqis broke diplomatic, diplomatic relations with us. Um, and off 
uh, I went to Saudi Arabia instead of uh, uh, Iraq or other countries that, that had been discussed. Mm-hmm. I was in Saudi Arabia for a year, and I did not like my assignment there for various reasons. And then I uh, was sent from Saudi Arabia to uh, Istanbul. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, now this is more like it. <laughs> <laughs> Turkey was a fabulous place to serve, and Istanbul was a unique city in the world. It still is, of course. Mm-hmm. But I loved it there. And I actually learned my job in Turkey. Uh, we were in Turkey during the Vietnam War, and there was a very activist, anti-American movement against uh, against us and our involvement in uh, in the in that war. And um, I, what I discovered was that you could have uh, young Turks who would be marching against the U.S. government at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and at 7, be studying in the U.S. Information Library. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, which, which taught me that uh, this is a, a country of, uh, of basic standards and values and laws, and uh, people can uh, agree with us or disagree with us, and we can still have uh, relationships based on values. Mm-hmm. So you really took your your USIA experience uh, uh, to these countries in terms of cultural exchange, educational exchange, books and literature and all those things. You were able to deal with that and 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 all of these area, all of these countries that you served. Oh yes, that was my. Uh, it was it, it was my great good luck to be in this this area, mm-hmm. to to be in Turkey, where the people I had to deal with were filmmakers and writers. My I had to deal with people who were musicians and actors. I had to deal with journalists. I had to deal with the most interesting people in the country. Mm-hmm. That was my job. <laughs> um. And then from Turkey uh, to Morocco, back into the Arab world, uh, fascinating place, enjoyed it very much. Um, and from Morocco to Syria. Wow. Uh, from Syria, Damascus is one of the most fascinating cities in the world, and my heart breaks to read what, happened, what is happening there now. Mm-hmm. From Syria uh, back to the U.S. for uh, a tour, then to Paris, uh, sorry, then to Brazil, mm-hmm. uh, and then to France, and then to Egypt. And wow. Egypt was a, uh, an amazing experience. We were there for four years and uh, got to know and, and uh, really appreciate the Egyptian public and our uh, many Egyptian friends. That's amazing. Were you History, able to pick up culture? Uh, excuse me. Were you able to pick up Portuguese uh, in Brazil? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I I did not go to school for Portuguese, mm-hmm. so I had to have classes in the embassy, and uh, I managed to get a working uh, knowledge of of Portuguese while I was there and uh, test it out, as they say. <laughs> All right. 
That's great. I want to shift a little bit and, and, and help our listeners uh, understand the role of a career foreign service officer. We're talking to Ambassador Kenton Keith, who has a distinct career in the foreign service uh, and has served in many posts, as you just heard, uh, around the world. Tell me, as you dealt with your public affairs and cultural exchange and the USAE kinds of uh, your job, how did you how did that interrelate to foreign policy in these countries? And you can choose one of them as in some example. Uh, you hadn't attained the rank of ambassador, but you were moving up in various assignments. And how did you relate to the foreign policy issues uh, uh, as a career foreign service officer? And you can just give us an example or two. Well, you know, the, uh, when you come into the foreign service, uh, it is made clear to you that you you won't always agree with decisions or policy directions that uh, come from the administration or from Washington. Mm-hmm. But you are still obliged to present a uh, a valid picture of what those policies are. Right. And you you have to uh, do the best that you can to uh, make sure that that the uh, the policies that are enunciated in Washington are actually being uh, uh, understood in the country where you're serving. Not mm-hmm. o- and that is often not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, in the the uh, the Middle East, for the for example, where I spent the bulk of my career, the American position until quite recently was that um, the the solution to the Middle East problems should be based on uh, a a land for peace deal along the lines of the uh, uh, of the UN resolutions that uh, 242 and 337 that brought the 67 war to an end. Mm-hmm. And there was a, um, a, a most negative reaction to that position over the years. But we had to try and establish the, uh, the the policy that the United States was looking for a just and lasting peace in the region based on the formula of land for peace. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of us had questions about uh, the... Uh, the, the development of the policy and influences on the policy and so on from within the United States. Right. But it was more important that we achieve an understanding of what those policies really were, what the United States really was after, and how uh, the United States wanted to proceed uh, with a negotiating series, uh, series of negotiations and peace talks. And, and when you mentioned land for peace, did that is that the same as what I recall when I think about the Middle East, a two-state solution or not? No, a two-state solution, 
is uh, came about. I mean, came, developed as a uh, as, as a tenet of the peace process okay. a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But it's all based on the same principle: uh, the recognition of Israel, recognition of Israel's right to exist, uh, as and the uh, the uh, willingness of Israel to give up land that it captured in the 1967 war uh, in the West Bank, in Gaza, and uh, in the Golan Heights in Syria. And that was basically the, the policy platform of the United States. Not just the United States, of course, but uh, uh, the... Uh, the United States and the United Nations. That was the, the basic policy platform until now. And, <laughs> and somehow uh, the idea of permanent Israeli settlements on the West Bank, which can't coexist in, at the end of the negotiating period. I mean, the idea was that there was somehow those settlements that were uh, established after 1967 would be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was never determined how they would be dealt with, but an example was in Gaza when the Israelis eventually withdrew from Gaza and that land was uh, ceded back to Egypt. Mm-hmm. The two-state solution has to do with uh, what happens to the uh, the West Bank as uh, as a as part of the negotiating process, a two-state solution would say that uh, a Palestinian state would exist with its capital, well, where? With its capital in Jerusalem, uh, probably, and an Israeli state would exist, and that the, the Palestinians and the other Arabs would recognize that Israeli state, it would be on the east side, uh, the west side of the uh, of the Jordan River, but um, that is the idea of uh, it's a it's what I think you might call a, a modification, a slight modification of those two UN resolutions. But the thing is based on those. The idea is based on uh, land for peace. And that's those principles uh, endure, but you say now uh, that is not quite the policy of the U.S. at this point. It's a little hard to figure out what the policy is right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there's and and who's making the policy? Yes, uh, the the State Department is not making the policy, as mm-hmm. far as I can tell. Right. Um, there is uh, the administration has uh, a special representative who's supposed to be making the ultimate deal for uh, uh, a peace settlement in the uh, in that region but i don't i don't see it um, mm-hmm. again I, as i said before i'm not on the inside anymore and i i don't know what's going on but the policy of land for peace on which uh, 40 50 years of of uh, of, of diplomatic uh, a, a diplomatic effort is based, 
that seems to be gone. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Um, I I really appreciate that. I think that's important to our listeners to have some sense. Um, Ambassador Keith has become a Middle East expert. He said he's not on the inside any longer, but he spent many of his uh, Foreign Service years dealing with those issues. And I want to I want to bring bring in one specific one I remember. Uh, it was after the um, 9/11. Uh, and this is a real crisis in, in our country and, uh, and the aftermath of 9-11. And I remember that um, you, uh, you may have retired by that point, but I'm not sure. But you were recalled back under the Bush administration to come back uh, to help uh, deal with some of the issues uh, after the, the 9-11 attack. Could you explain that? Am I, am I right in no, that well, regard? Well, after 9-11, you'll recall that uh, Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan, and we wanted the Afghans to uh, extradite him. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the, the Taliban regime refused, uh, that is when uh, the United States uh, took up arms. Um, in the process, uh, there were... Uh, Lots of there was uh, lots of combat activity, and while and and of course the press of the world was interested in what was going on, and while there, that was happening, the only place in the world where the Taliban had an ambassador was Pakistan, mm. and that ambassador would have a press conference every day, <laughs> in which he would talk about. B-52s being shot down and uh, dozens of American body bags at the airports and so on, just making stuff up as he went along. Mm-hmm. But the, if the time difference meant that by the time Washington woke up and was able to deal with his uh, claims, uh, there had been a whole new cycle in which people heard about those B-52s being shot down and the body bags at the airport. Mm -hmm. They decided that they needed somebody out there who could actually respond before Washington woke up. And uh, that's when I was called. I had already retired, and I was sent out to to head a a team of uh, the alliance. It wasn't just the United States. It was... Uh, an alliance of uh, European and Middle, Middle Eastern and others, and the idea was to be able to uh, to have our own press conference in the same uh, in the same news cycle as our dear uh, friend, the the Taliban ambassador. <laughs> and you were and, called. Were you called a special envoy to Islamabad? Yes. yes. Fantastic. So there I was. We we uh, set up a and uh, what I think was a very effective uh, center with uh, Europeans, Americans, and uh, Arabs as well, um, responding to some of the uh, the claims of the Taliban ambassador. And but in fact. Almost as soon as we got there and set up, he decided that you know he was it, it didn't 
uh, advance their interest to have to have us uh, disputing his claims. <laughs> so they just stopped. But uh, very, very important position. Uh, you served as spokesman for the U.S.-led coalition during that time That's of right. major conflict operations in Afghanistan. And the fact that you yes. um, had had that background experience, you were called back to, to be that spokesman. And I'm sure, again, your Middle East experience, your, your being able to speak Arabic, uh, uh, was an important piece for that assignment. Those were those were factors, no no doubt about it. <laughs> well, I'm very proud of you, and as I said, you don't blow your own horn. But uh, over the years, I've watched you, and I, as I was doing the research, I could, I was just, I wasn't surprised, but just very proud of all of the awards that you received over time for your service as a career foreign service officer, uh, and you retired at the rank of career minister. Uh, but a number of awards, meritorious awards for your service. Um, you also were a part of the World Affairs Council of our fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, I, I didn't I belong to am. that. Uh, you're still involved. And what kind of things are, are we doing in, in, in the Fraternity World Council? Well, uh, we have been uh, trying to publish uh, on, a, uh, on a, an ad hoc basis uh, studies, um, analyses of issues, of international issues that affect African Americans, especially. Mm -hmm. Not just African Americans, obviously, but uh, where we need to, we feel that we need to uh, make a policy statement or a policy analysis. And uh, I must say, it is a, a stimulating, uh, a stimulating practice to be with my my brothers uh on the uh council mm -hmm. and uh, to, to to be a part of the debates um and we'll get you someday <laughs> i'd like to i certainly would love to join you and and the alpha brothers because i know that uh, if you're involved uh it, it's certainly worth the effort so We'll stay in touch on that one. Um, we've been talking to um, Ambassador Kenton Keith, a career foreign service officer uh, who served around the world. In his last post, he was ambassador to Qatar, uh, expert on the Middle East, fluent in French and Arabic, and uh, uh, a real strong foreign service officer. And I, I want to uh, begin to wind down our, this interview, who's been extremely informative in my judgment, um, to talk about being a career foreign service officer, because today uh, in the news with what's happening with the Trump administration and what's going on in Ukraine and the embassy involvement there uh, and a back channel on foreign policy. Give me your thoughts on that, Kenton, about uh, being a career foreign service officer and, and, and involved with maybe some kind of back-channel foreign policy uh, uh, from the ambassador's point of view. Give me some sense of your reaction. Well, my, my uh, sense is that the, uh, uh, this administration is wasting one of the country's greatest assets. It's, it's foreign service and has tried to make them... Uh, appear to be rogue uh, foreign policy wonks, and uh, mm -hmm. when in fact uh, the the foreign the foreign service has been uh, loyal and committed, and is uh, one of the most important assets this country has. I uh, the morale is 
is very uh, is very low. Mm-hmm. Important positions have gone unfilled for four years. Uh, I don't know um, whether the two secretaries of state, uh, Mr. Tillerson or Mr. Pompeo, have uh, under this uh, administration have had any influence or whether they have have had enough knowledge and background to have an influence. Mm -hmm. Uh, But um, in any case, we are regarded at the moment as uh, as being um, eccentric, uh, difficult to understand and follow. Uh, if If your president says... He's the only one who matters as far as foreign policy development is concerned. Then, you know, he, he he's giving up something he really can't afford to to give up, which is the expertise, the experience, the judgment, uh, and the probity of uh, of his foreign service. I certainly agree, and I commend uh, those officers who've had the courage to stand up to uh, uh, those kinds of. Uh, uh, challenges. I, I've been very proud of those those foreign service it's, it's officers. It's part of our job. Absolutely. It's been part of our job. We, we, Of course, as I said before, we have to be sure that the policy is understood, and uh, we have to, to the maximum extent possible, uh, advocate. But at the same time, we, you know, we, we have an obligation to say to Washington, mm-hmm. in our, either in our direct uh, communication with regional bureaus are in the dissent channel, and there is a dissent channel. Mm-hmm. Um, but to say, uh, Mr. President, this isn't correct, this isn't right. wise, this isn't profitable to us, uh, this isn't the way to go. I agree and with you. Uh, I, I guess by the, uh, the, the evidence of, of people leaving and uh, and uh, not being replaced, uh, somebody's listening. I agree. I agree. Before we close down, I do have a couple of other uh, questions uh, I'd like to get your, your, your reactions to. Um, just one other organization that we both belong to, and I think you chaired at one, to- one time, was the Association of Black American Ambassadors. And tell our listeners a little bit about that organization uh, we both belong to and, and its value. We had, uh, uh, at at the earliest part of the 60s, when uh, this organization was formed, we had a a pitiful uh, number of African-American ambassadors, you know, like two or three Mm -hmm. uh, that were always sent to the same place. And uh, there were a, a number of uh, uh, the people who were trying to uh, press for more diversity in the senior ranks. Um, that's when the American Association, the Association of Black American Ambassadors, was formed. Things have changed over the years. Uh, it is has been recognized that it is not just about more black American ambassadors, but it's more, it's about more black Americans. 
in the Foreign Service, right. because the the, uh, the Foreign Service has does not look like America. Mm-hmm. It's better now for women than it used to be, because now they're bringing in. Usually, it's uh, in new classes. There are more women than men. Uh, but as far as the African American contingent is concerned, or the Hispanic or the uh, Native American, mm-hmm. uh, it it isn't where it should be. And the Association of Black American Ambassadors it pushes for uh, special programs to bring in uh, to to make the Foreign Service better known to African Americans and to uh, to bring Afri- African Americans into uh, these uh, into into uh, programs that will prepare them for careers in the Foreign Service. Um, some of the best programs uh, for uh, for equality, for creating greater equality, are actually in the State Department. Uh, the the Pickering program and the Wrangell program, right, and uh, where they take promising young African American students from uh, universities uh, for the Pickering and from high schools for the uh, for the Wrangell program, and actually fund uh, the, in the Pickering case fund uh, the. Uh, uh, master's studies and give internships to these uh, youngsters in embassies abroad in the summer and uh, then they, they are allowed to come into the Foreign Service as career officers in uh, with, with without having to go through the process of the written exam but go through a process of a uh, of an oral uh, assessment. That's fantastic. So I, when I was doing inspections, I would come into contact with these young bickerings uh, in embassies in Spain or in Brazil, and so proud of them uh, was I <laughs> that I just couldn't hold it back. They were so proud of themselves as bickering fellows and you could tell in the in the embassy business that they were deferred to, they were respected, and so on. So that's how you do it if you want to do it right. But it well, that's, is expensive. Uh, well, that's fantastic. You, you gave a great view of uh, the role of uh, organizations like the Association of Black American Ambassadors, the uh, opportunities for people, particularly um, minorities, African Americans, Hispanics, and others to to get into the Foreign Service. I want to close out. It's been great discussion with you. I, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I want to close out with asking whatever you want to say to our listeners, particularly uh, African-Americans, uh, women, or others who may want to pursue a Foreign Service career, if you want to talk anything about your family, because I know your son and daughter are active uh, on many fronts. Uh, your son lives overseas and your daughter in Florida, and she's been active in politics. If you want to, any advice you want to give to uh, people about foreign well, service? the basic thing I would say is, uh, is y- you do a better job of talking about my family than I do. <laughs> I know, so. 
I'll leave that where it is, except to say I'm very proud of them. Right. And that uh, uh, my they have different views on the Foreign Service process, <laughs> the Foreign Service life. Uh, my son doesn't think there's anything that could ever compare with the you know, places he's lived and things that he's earned. And my daughter, uh, who has just as much, uh, has drawn just as much from the experience, uh, except she has no homies. <laughs> is that and, right? And that is uh, more important to her as she, she grows uh, older. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, the other thing that I would say is I'm so happy whenever I meet young African-American students or youngsters who are in other fields, when they express interest in foreign affairs, Great. they express interest in international affairs, about what goes on overseas, because it is, it touches them. Whether they know it or not, it touches all of us, mm -hmm. whether we know it or not. And uh, it is, I think, vitally important that the Foreign Service as the principal representatives, the bureaucratic representation of the United States in the world, look like America. Good. On that note, Ambassador Keith, which is a great high note to end this interview, thank you so much for participating. Uh, it's been a pleasure for me. We've been speaking with Ambassador Kenton Keith, career Foreign Service officer, former U.S. ambassador to Qatar, uh, who had been our special envoy to uh, Islamabad uh, right after the 9-11, uh, a real, real uh, patriot and foreign service officer. So, Kenton, thanks so much for this uh, exciting interview. Delano, always good to talk to you. Take care. You have been listening to Left, Right, Forward. I am your host, Ambassador Delano Lewis, and we've been speaking with Ambassador Kenton Keith, who happened to be my roommate back in the early days in the 60s, 50s and 60s <laughs> at the University of Kansas. But he went on with an extreme career in foreign service and served around the world with his last post as ambassador to Qatar. Uh, I hope you found this educational and informative and I know inspiring. Until next time, Godspeed. You have been listening to the Left Right Forward Show, where our mission is to inspire, educate, and inform. Thanks for listening.